This is a good one, Joe. Fantastic. All right. We're just going to, you know what? We just finished. It's 1127 Eastern time. Yeah. And uh, I've I got a lot to do. I, you know what? I, I'm just going to go live to tape with this thing. I thought it was, it was a great conversation. If, Show notes are going to basically just contain Kathy's article. Yep. Because everything we talked about, I think, is in that article. She's got a few other things that she mentioned that, yeah. that are not. But I'm just going to put that one thing in the show notes, I think, because I think if you look at that article, you'll see everything. Yeah. Do I have your permission to do this, Joe? You absolutely do, because it was a fantastic conversation. Um, clear and interesting and jumped around to a lot of fun stuff. And it's just going to be it's beautiful. All right, what else do I need your permission for? Um, I will let you know after you do something wrong so that I can punish you. <laughs> ex post. Indeed. And rather than ex ante. I prefer ex ante rules, Joe. <laughs> too right. bad let's let's go with this okay right. i don't know about this new skype sound <laughs> what do you, like do it's like badunkadunk or something it's, yeah, it's weird sounding. weird yeah i don't know hello this is kathy sharkey kathy it's christian hi how are you Good. It's remarkable at my end that this worked. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you sound you sound really fantastic, really great. I mean, I mean, in addition to just sounding like a wonderful person that you are, but but, but your audio thank sounds you, great. Thank you. Well, about ten minutes ago, I would have sounded more frazzled. I just had an IT person rush in with a uh, headset, so I think that's maybe why you can hear me at all. <laughs> mm. Oh, you, it sounds good. And good. you know, Joe and I actually, this is you, you've put your finger on an issue that that in some ways, like divides us a little bit. Let's mm. be honest, Joe, okay. about this. So, you know, if, if, if a meeting is scheduled for 10, Joe shows up, I don't know, 915, 920. Hey, right? hey, now. <laughs> I, and, and I think 10, it means 10, you don't show up at 1005, depending right. on the meeting. You know, if it's a social engagement, yeah, 1015, 1020. Joe says, oh, yeah, if it's social, 945. You, know, <laughs> you, you, you wanted to surprise those or anything. Right. But, but for, so for this kind of thing, um, you know, when we say, we're going to, Kathy will call you at, at 10. Um, I think because there's fiddly stuff going on, I think 10 to 10.05 is the right window because people, you know, people yeah, early might really catch someone out on the technology. Yeah. So yeah. I just never want to call anybody early. Yeah. Yeah. Well, early would have been bad, but right on time is great because I have <laughs> a couple folks on standby who were <laughs> until like 10.05 in case this didn't, didn't go off. I, so, I, I can't yeah. see anything that's going to go wrong at this point. You know, the, so the weird thing, Kathy, is, you know, we've met before, obviously, uh, at one of Guido's reu- uh, reunions at some mm-hmm. point. But we haven't, you know, I don't feel like we've chatted a whole bunch, um, right. even though we've seen each other before. Right. And we both do law school stuff. I've taught leg reg. We both do similar things. So um, I apologize. We, sh- I we should talk more. <laughs> we, yes, we, we, should. we should. Reunions are great, but especially when you have children running around, you know, they don't tend to be great times to actually catch up with people. Exactly. In, in a legal sense. That's true. No, yeah. I didn't know there was this uh, connection, mm. uh, social connection between, because I'm, uh, Christian and I have this division of labor where... I book guests and he does everything important. Um, <laughs> so, because <laughs> yeah, booking guests is totally unimportant. I think. <laughs> well, no, I mean, but see, you've now made me feel better because I feel like I was booked on the merit, not because of some, you know, insider. Right. Status, exactly. You know? No, I saw. I, <laughs> I saw the. Um, I, I see papers pop up when they when they come up in various ways, and I saw this, and I thought, wow, this is right on a line where where a number of conversations we have with a number of different people, and just sort of my sense that, and I don't teach administrative law, mm-hmm. and in fact, I come at administrative law from sort of a weird IP angle because the you know IP law in the United States, the agencies are so weak right. relative to the. Uh, typical administrative law functions. Um, but but 
I feel like this administrative law, which I kind of follow for reasons I don't quite understand, but I feel like it's at this inflection point. Mm-hmm. And so your paper and the issues we'd been talking about with other people, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is great. We have to have, I don't know who this Professor Sharkey is, but <laughs> we need to get her in here because this paper is really interesting and will let us will be a, a nice uh, a point of departure for a, a number of different things we could talk right. about. And well, so, I'm so glad say, that you're here. Great. I'll say up front, I like the latter, but not the former. We don't want that publicized. I don't know who the heck this shark is. <laughs> we can well, edit like that I said, part out. I'm happy no, that. listen, I'm not an ad law scholar. I don't, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know who's in the who's writing stuff and what. My, but it my, looked great. So. My estimation of Joe just went down another notch. It's 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 kind of like the little uh, and, climber guy on Prices Right. It goes right. up and down. And it no, goes I'm in a sub basement then at this point because like who doesn't know who Kathy Sharkey is? I think that's crazy. But anyway, now no one. The now other I know. the other preliminary point I want to yes. make here because. Joe is really, I don't know, Kathy, you know, you, I'm sure you're, you know, like most people, you're not a listener to the show. But let me just say up front, uh, Joe and I also have back and forth about how much preliminary stuff to do because our listeners love preliminary. <laughs> things, right? But let me just say this. There is, this is an ad law paper, which involves some complicated things and some things which are, which are like on the surface accessible. But there is absolutely no reason that any of our listeners, whether they are lawyers or law scholars or whatever, cannot follow along because the ideas here are, i think very very simple yeah but they build on one another they're very powerful very powerful and, and why it's such an interesting paper actually for that reason I right think. and it's historical but at the same time explains or at least puts its finger on a lot of the you know the, the central tension among the modern supreme court with respect mm-hmm. to some very important issues so i don't know how you want to approach it kathy but i thought like going back in time to the time before the age of statutes and talking about you know the um, the criticisms of the common law that were that Roscoe Pound in his early days was making, which is kind of ironic because I was just teaching this right. in my modern American legal theory class. We oh, read cool. the Law and Books and Law and Action piece, and that's like early Pound, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But you see threads of of both of these, um, you know, maybe to a time when like you've got like medicine uh you know uh quack medicine sellers and like covered wagons who are coming through town selling elixirs you know <laughs> and how are these things regulated uh in the age before the rise of the administrative state so you had at back in the day in the united states we had the pure common law or a pure common law right mm-hmm. and how do, how do things work do you want to set the stage with that i could just with the caveat and i don't know how this works i presume we're not you guys at some point just start recording and then everything oh, we've is been recorded recording we've it. been recording the whole time <laughs> yeah but okay yeah 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 but but we can we can cut stuff out if you know if anything's embarrassing or whatever. no no yeah. no i just didn't know how i didn't know exactly how you how you ran it we could do that just so that you know you know my my expertise i mean i'd love to hear what what you have to say about that era because my expertise is not in the history i mean this particular my way into this paper uh, getting into Pound and the early common law at all was somewhat uh, fortuitous. I mean, somewhat because I was invited to give uh, a talk as that was being co-sponsored by the Pound Institute, right? So I had been, and they asked, they sort of put a provocative question to me and said, are we a common law country anymore mm. based on my work in preemption? And so what was interesting to me was to kind of think through some of the um, hysterical reaction, one might say, on both sides, whether we call it the left and the right. So the sort of, quote unquote, overreaction that given preemption and given the rise of the administrative state, we have no common law and we need to return to that. And juries should be celebrated and tort law as regulation should be celebrated on the one hand. And I'm talking about modern times now. On the other hand, we have this mounting kind of attack on the 
administrative state, that it's this uh, behemoth, that it's leading to tyranny, that it must be stopped. And of course, as you know, in the paper, one of the things I wanted to first explore without introducing Pound at all was this kind of paradox or at least juxtaposition of the modern Supreme Court which does seem to be showing skepticism. Again, maybe there's uh, uh, some overreaction about a retreat from Chevron deference, our deference, but this mounting skepticism. uh, And yet in this field of regulation of medical devices and drugs, the court seems to have um, suspended its skepticism and is happy to celebrate the FDA over the common law, et cetera. So Pound became an interesting kind of framing device. And you're right, there's a really intriguing kind of early Pound versus late Pound. And in some sense, um, one of the maybe confusing parts of the paper is I'm trying to draw possibly strategically (laughs) elements from both versions of Pound. And others have led, others have asked intriguing questions like why, what caused the shift in Pound? I think I have to leave that mm-hmm. kind of to the historians. Um, and John Witt's done some very good work uh, starting to uncover that. But all that said, I mean, what you, what you wanted me to cover, I do know a bit with respect to the development of regulation of pharmaceuticals and medical devices. So as you said early on, the kind of common law uh, approach um, seemed to be facing a big struggle with like snake oils that were being right. sold as medicines, et cetera. And what's interesting too is just tracing kind of the regulatory development. I think some people forget they kind of go from that stage to today with the full blown FDA as gold standard, everything they do. And they forget that the original Food Drug Act in 1906, you know, was basically just policing adulteration and that that's one form. You know, we could have a more minimal form of regulation. We could recognize we can't just have the common law, that there are reasons why we would need regulation. But do those arguments mean that we have to have the most stringent ex-ante regulation by the FDA today with three phases of clinical trials, keeping things off the market that are often introduced in other countries, et cetera? Um, I guess my main interest is thinking about this balance, this way in which the common law evolves and doesn't evolve in a vacuum. It evolves with the evolving administrative state. And um, I guess I I place my stakeholder in terms of where I'm trying to have a, a value added in the academy is I think all too often scholars are either in the field of torts or the field of administrative law. And right. to me, it seems very natural that if you're interested in any kind of issue that uh, touches on regulation of health and safety that you should be, you know, kind of a scholar of both and trying to think about how the two systems work, um, not as either or substitutes, but as complements necessarily. I mean, there can be, I don't mean that it always works in a Panglossian, wonderful, synergistic way, but thinking about the ways in which uh, what the balance, what the right balance should be, what should happen when there are clashes, et cetera. Well, in the paper, what I like is in the kind of the historical arc of it is, is not is not the like historical lesson itself necessarily, which is, of course, interesting. And, and but as you say, it's not your expertise. It's not the main point of this paper, but as a framing device to kind of uh, help us see and, and people who aren't expert in this, I think, to see that. You know, harms have always been with us. Harms are just out there. People get harmed by things where they they allege they've been harmed and there's a whole complication about what counts as a harm. But the way that we respond to those 
and in particular, what kinds of institutions respond to those harms and whether they work together or they work separately. That's what's been changing, right? And and so Pound starts out by being very critical of judges, actually, right? right. Judges re- being the uh, uh, being the ones who respond to harms, but using the historical school or the natural law school, right? Re- resolving the issue of harms by uh, dis- by quote unquote discovering the real law instead of applying their critical faculties and using empirics and other things, right? right. But he's also even in those early works critical of legislatures who, you know against kind of individual liberty and human freedom are making uh, um, uh, very fine and particular laws that are rigid. And so even in the even early pound uh, in at least in law and books and law and action is arguing for a legislature that legislation in terms of principles responding to the people and therefore kind of eliminating that drift between kind of popular will and the law and law in the books. And then judges who can kind of individualize justice based on those principles. And so to me, there's kind of a continuity between the earlier pound and the later pound. Even if you read the earlier pound to be kind of of a piece with Holmes and others, the the kind of hardcore legal realists who are saying, you know, the for, judge formalist judges are not making plain that they're basically, you know, public policy um, analysts. And Right. No, I fu- I, that's, an, that's an interesting way. I like the way you frame that. I fully agree with that. And another, I guess, to, to um, extract kind of an abstract theme from that that I think would, would apply to my own work is it seems like the, the continuing challenge is we have a system whereby we're going to have judges in a common law system where there's some form of common law that remains, right, against statutes, regulations, etc., and what are the tools? What is the what are the tools whereby the judges are going to be able to make the right decisions? So as as you know, a lot of my work has trying to focus on creating this model, actually a model that would be most relevant to judges, say in the preemption context. I've called it the agency reference model, but it's all about trying to get input from the agencies into the court decision making process. And I do think that's a, I do think that he thought very deeply. And again, he had kind of changing both cultural and personal circumstances, I think, going on throughout his career that might be determining the the various mixtures. But he was very interested, I think, in that kind of central question with respect to, um, as you just put it, I think it's the the dichotomy between the formalist judge versus maybe the quote-unquote realist judge, where what the realist judge isn't doing is some cynical undertaking. It's actually a recognition of the kinds of empirical evidence, other types of systematic data, information, et cetera, that could be um, harnessed. And I, I kind of like that, as I said, because I think a lot of my a lot of my other work in the preemption context has really been focused a lot on that issue. And I've talked to a lot of judges over the years about it, too. And it's kind of fascinating in preemption to think about the dichotomy between a judge who thinks about their exercise as as a kind of interpretation of statutes mm-hmm. and very little beyond that versus one that recognizes that they are doing this interpretive rec- exercise against the backdrop of a heavily regulated field, for example, in drugs and medical devices and how they should appropriately go about um, harnessing that kind of uh, input. Because it sounds from the paper that that part of what that input can provide that the individual claim of injury wouldn't necessarily provide is, uh, you know, for example, some of the trade-offs involved in, well, if I, 
if I make you safer by making this thing unavailable, there's a price to be paid by by the people who wouldn't be harmed by it and, in fact, would be helped by it because their circumstance is slightly different from yours. So right. it sounds like agencies in a in the bureaucratic sense of administration looking for the positives and the negatives and how they interact would would situate that person's claim in a broader context. Now that of course that person doesn't really want to be in a broader context. <laughs> they right. say I've been injured, I need to be compensated because of the harm the injury inflicted on me. Look at me, look at my story. Right, because it's real. And right. that person has an issue they're trying to actually grapple with in making their individual claim in court. Right. So their their interests are, are fundamentally different from an administrative interest. Right. Um, but and it's fundamentally opposed. Look at me. Look at my story is kind of fundamentally distinct in its enterprise from. Wait a minute. We're making public policy here. We've got to look at all the stories. Right. Right. And think and of pre- all the potential bad stories we can prevent. Yeah. yeah I mean, it is and it isn't. So let me just interject. <laughs> so I agree. I, I think you put your finger. Absolutely. Right. And um, it also gets right. We, I don't want to be, you know, too in some sense. I, I do want to be very free ranging. I don't want to get us off topic. That, but in that's some the sense, show, you know, okay. beyond, you know, beyond your expertise, free ranging. That's yeah, what we this, do. around. We live there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, so part of it is um, so you put your finger on a couple of different things. So one, right, the raging debate in tort law about whether this is a system that is that whose purpose should be regulatory. Or if instead, for example, tort law should serve um, moral corrective justice or what some newer scholars are calling civil recourse kind of aims. And this, they focus there. This is like there. Uh, Calabresi versus Zapersky, for example. Yeah, or the earlier debate, right, was Coleman versus yeah. Calabresi, right? Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. And then, so we, we, I want to start, right, I think I want to start from a premise that um, one, if not, it doesn't necessarily be the exclusive purpose. It's not going to describe exactly how we set up the whole system. But a goal of what we're trying to accomplish through tort law is regulatory. Now, you're absolutely right. And actually, I have a different paper that played out even amongst the U.S. Supreme Court case law. There's this way in which if tort law wears these at least two hats, and we'll call one regulatory deterrence space, we could call the other compensatory, since that's what you put your uh, finger on. You know, what you don't want, what the Supreme Court seemed to do, is to be able to toggle between the two and describe tort law as exclusively regulatory in the cases in which they were going to find that it's preempted by the Mm -hmm. administrative sector. And then in another case, say, wait, it's all about compensation. And what about this injured person before us? And then suddenly there's no preemption. To me, that's kind of an irrational way to approach the issue, which might be seen as tort law has this regulatory purpose and also serves compensatory kind of goals or aims. But, um, the way I think in a, that, that that should play out, though, is it would be so I agree with you in the first part. I guess I disagree somewhat or at least want to interject. I don't think that we can be divorced from this issue of what happens in the individual case and then scaling it up, either scaling it up to others who aren't before the court, et cetera, because, of course, courts in the common law are going to be deciding cases and leading through the appellate process, et cetera, to an articulation of rules that are then going to govern going forward and are going to have effects on 
all sorts of individuals, future cases, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think we could ever be entirely divorced. I don't think that means that you have to put on a blinder and never consider, for example, compensatory aims. So Mm -hmm. that's just a footnote in the preemption debate where I've argued compensation or the compensatory scheme should be relevant. I made an argument uh, writing about uh, preemption in the vaccine context, that the idea in the vaccine context is interesting and different because it's one of the few areas where Congress, when it passed the National Vaccine Injury uh, Compensation Act, not only set up regulatory standards, but set up a compensatory fund, right? Typically in like the Food, Drug, Cosmetic Act, they set up all sorts of regulations, but they don't say anything about compensation, etc. And so, in the vaccine context, my argument was, is um, if or, or took comparing the vaccine context with the regular drug context, my argument was, if there's been no provision whatsoever for a compensatory framework, then that should take arguments of what are called field preemption off the table. You shouldn't be able to say that Congress came in and took over the entire field mm-hmm. of regulation of drugs because it didn't make any provision there. But it shouldn't go further. It shouldn't be, well, no matter what, there should never be preemption because someone has been injured. Because take, for example, a situation where the FDA has exhaustively looked in the aggregate at the risk evidence, is trying to make a decision whether to add a warning to a particular um, to a particular pharmaceutical drug and looking, right, they're going to be not just cost-benefit analysis, but sort of risk-risk analysis. If you overwarn you might cause deaths, right? Think about warnings on drugs, for example, that are taken for people who are severely uh, depressed, right? It might lead to suicide. If you overwarn and then these drugs aren't appropriately prescribed and administered, the outcomes could be really, really serious on both sides of this. So imagine a situation where the FDA has exhaustively looked at the state of the art uh, science on this and come to a determination not to add a particular warning on a particular drug. Well, if, if, and the next day someone is in, you know, harmed having taken that drug and brings a state tort suit saying you should have added this warning that the FDA specifically said not to add, in my mind, that should be preempted. You well, still have a tragic situation. You have someone who's been injured, et cetera, but that would be, uh, that would be inappropriate. That would, to my mind, not lead to the right kind of overarching regulatory. Joe, aims. can I? Can I back up a bit yeah. and just yeah. try to map this out just a little bit? I may, may, may sure. make a hash of it, but maybe it'll make it like a little bit clearer for people who don't know what preemption is and are and maybe getting a little bit lost. Is is that all right? Yeah. You, you seem irritated with me. I am, but it, it'll pass. <laughs> it always does. At least it always has. You know, we'll see if this is the last episode. But, uh, <laughs> you know, because part of what you put your finger on there, right, uh, or, or at least one implication of that is it's possible that if two different decision makers are regulating to uh, kind of the same harm that they and, and they both have and they, and they both do something, the resulting regulatory network might be worse than if either of them had the authority alone, right? So you can have kind of conflicting signals in, in mm-hmm. the system. But to back up a little bit, you know, the the common law that we keep referring to is the is the system in which harms of various kinds, you know, whether failure to warn and medicines going bad or think of anything else, are are regulated by rules laid down by judges over time. Uh, operating based on precedent or based on uh, their own public policy insights or some combination of them. And there's a whole debate about what should guide judges. And one of the realist critiques was on basically what should guide judges in, in making making the law. And then you get kind of the rise of legislation um, 
maybe at state legislatures first, you know, kind of impinging on tort law or, you know, the contributory comparative negligence thing. But it doesn't matter. The details don't necessarily matter. Just that the legislatures begin to take an interest in regulating harms. And mm-hmm. then there's a question of like how that should go. Like should legislatures have supreme authority? What happens when there are gaps? What happens when there's ambiguity? Should there be as – you and Guido and others have argued some dialogue. Should we be looking for ways for judges to have dialogue with legislatures? And then you get – and I say and then as if I'm giving an historical thing and I'm not. I just right. need to be kind of layering on the different institutions here. And then there's the issue of, of the federal government. Mm-hmm. And with the New Deal, we see because of the collapse of the, of the nation and the Great Depression, some, some felt need to have centralized authority over some kinds of questions. And you get the buildup of federal legislation a lot of which was, I guess, struck down before the New Deal, um, and, and you get a reversal of that. So federal uh, uh, regulations in the form of legislation from Congress, and eventually that legislation creates agencies which themselves kind of create specific laws implementing the broad directions given by Congress, and those directions can be quite broad. So there's a d- debate over kind of like uh, legislature versus courts as, as sources of laws aimed at harms at the state level. And then there's the state versus the federal level because um, after Erie, you don't have federal judges making independent common law. So federal regulation comes from at least initially from the legislature. And then how what should be the breakdown in terms of uh, specific regulations between Congress and the agencies? And when the agencies make law, they do so through, well, a number of means, but one of the main ones is, is, is rulemaking. And that's when the courts get involved in interpreting those rules and figuring out whether they're going to agree with the agency or give the agency a pass or give them some amount of deference. And so one of the big questions is how how does all this stuff fit together when these different entities are pursuing different purposes? And we've got all kinds of rules at the legislature versus court level, especially at the state level, about, you know, how the common law should yield to legislation and in what areas. That's a, that's a kind of preemption, right? This derogation mm-hmm. of the common law principle. But then you also have rules of, and what we keep calling preemption is what happens when the federal government acts in the face of uh, states wanting to act? When does, under the supremacy clause, the federal statute or federal regulation prevent the states from doing anything or erase what the states have already done? Uh, and then you get into this whole issue of deference between, you know, what, what level of deference court should give uh, federal agencies when they act either on interpreting their own uh, regulations or interpreting ambiguous congressional regulations. And there's a whole, you know, know, mess of issues involved there. I don't know if I've mapped out the field well, but I I just wanted to make sure all those institutions were out on the table so we can attach names to like common law and to federal law making rulemaking. No, it's very helpful. So I I really, what you should do is you should send this into the New York Times as an (laughs) op-ed. Because what you left out, right? I don't know if you you probably saw uh, a couple weeks ago, there was an article that uh, was about the Obama administration. And it basically, the tagline to it was that Mr. Obama will leave the White House as one of the most prolific authors of major regulations <laughs> in presidential history. And of course, everyone was saying, wait a minute, I thought agencies promulgate, agencies who have been delegated authority by Congress promulgate re- regulations, not the presidency. But yeah, no, I, I, more seriously, I think you mapped that out very well. And the only, the two things that I would say is um, all of this in a sense, so you're right, I probably... Um, more to my own self-interest, I should have included that mapping at the outset of this article. It might have been helpful because all of it, in some sense, is implicated, right? And part of the paper, I talk about how 
pound in common law and legislation was criticizing right the prevailing judicial practice of strictly reading these statutes in derogation of the common law. And I also talk about how I then link him with Calabresi writing a common law for the age of statutes about each of them through those works resisting what's come to be known as this common law chauvinism, right? Mm-hmm. Of sort of we want to just return to the glory days of the common law absent these interventions by the, the legislatures. And instead, we need to think about a process. Um, Calabresi thought about this process more than pounded to some extent about uh, trying to have this dialogic uh, process where the courts and the legislatures would talk to one another. If you, I think what I'm trying to, to, to gesture towards, but I haven't fully developed in, in this piece, is exactly kind of where you ended about what would those, what is that kind of debate or principle, how does that shed light on what is going on today when, in a sense, we could say, right, I could write a book called A Common Law for the Age of Regulation, Mm. right, and try to ask, and in some sense, many of my prior work has been asking this question about um, in in, in this day where more of our law is coming, at least as pertains to health and safety areas, is coming from... Um, very active federal regulatory agencies. And again, just to pick on um, drugs and medical devices, the thing, the one other thing I'd put into your framing, your overarching mapping, is if you step back in the United States, when you just think about the United States vis-a-vis other countries, other modern developed countries in the world, we rely on common law regulation, for example, for products much more than any other country in the world, right? So we do have to me, this kind of question of are we a common law country at all seems somewhat absurd in many fields. Take, for example, lots of consumer products, right? We do have something called the Consumer Product Safety Commission, but their mission is somewhat limited, their resources, their budget, et cetera. So we rely on parties coming forward, both individually and through class action litigation, et cetera. And that's, in a sense, my view, that's how products are regulated in the main. What's distinct about pharmaceutical drugs and medical devices is here we have the FDA doing really stringent ex-ante regulation, right? We could think about the common law or torts as a form of ex-post regulation. So we have really stringent ex-ante regulation, what's been called the gold standard, more stringent, you know, ex-ante regulation than anywhere else in the world. And one of the interesting questions is, should these things be some sense hydraulic, right? If you have very high, stringent ex-ante regulation, should you then have a lower degree of ex-post well, uh, from, from the, regulation? Y- you, were, you were laying out an example before about the individual's injury claim that gets right to that question about, you know, should it be a hydraulic relationship or, you know, as one grows, the other recedes? Because... In a way, when you were talking about the person making the injury claim and then raising the prospect, but wait a minute, if we looked at it comprehensively and we determined that, for example, overwarning could create its own kinds of problems and you you look at the project of an agency and the project of the individual injury claim and vindicating that claim, they just sound fundamentally different and they have fundamentally different objectives they use fundamentally different techniques. Moreover, the technique of the agency can has a has a claim to a kind of comprehensiveness and a kind of contextualized conclusion that the individual injury claim is just never going to have. 
right? They, they, they're never going to be able to say the the person who's pursuing the individual injury claim, look, what about all the people who this thing helps, who of course aren't here complaining because they weren't hurt, they were helped, right? Mm-hmm. And the agency is always going to be able to say, ah, we looked at all of it, right? We we looked at both the 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 harm and the help, and so we're understanding this at the level of trade offs. Isn't that a sense in which? The, the administrative approach is always going to be superior. What's left for the tort claim to do? I oh, guess I'm saying I'm kind of sympathetic right. to the idea that that the administrative technique, at least when it comes to the personal injury context, seems like it's got a real leg up in technique. Okay, so that's inter- you're right. I, I thought earlier, and I think you can look at this from both directions, right? You could have said everything you said and then concluded by, so therefore, shouldn't we always have tort law because it's, pursu- <laughs> no, because it's pursuing these different individualistic type aims? And we were talking a bit about that. Now, let's flip to your side. What's left for tort? And, and in preemption, the way we would frame that is why, for example... Because the FDA, I just finished uh, extol, you know, waxing <laughs> semi-eloquently about the ex-ante stringent regulation by the FDA as the gold standard, why in that realm shouldn't there be field preemption, right? You should never be able to bring any kind of a um, claim uh, in tort. So I have two responses. One I talked about before, which is I think it's a hard argument to make that Congress intervened and overtook the entirety of the field, leaving no room for state law when they didn't give any attention whatsoever to the compensatory side. No, that sounds right but, to me. And the vaccine at contrast is a really powerful contrast in that regard. I mean, that sounds that sounds right to me. OK, but I think to me, in some sense, the more difficult and also more interesting since, you know, uh, or, or more nuanced framing is, well, what about um, conflict preemption, right, which is a narrower form of preemption, which says that um, as uh, you were you were talking about before, stems from the supremacy clause, right? Which is this idea that if the federal regulation says do X and state law says do not do X, we have to have a system that says that federal law trumps state law. So in this context, is there ever any room for tort law? Well, here's the situation, the hypothetical that I imagine is the FDA approves a drug at point time T equals zero, And in order to do that, it does this exhaustive pre-market review process, requires three levels of clinical trials. It's like this decades-long, really expensive uh, process, decides that a drug is safe and effective and also approves the exact label on the drug. Okay, So that's like, let's say, T equals zero or for normal people. Let's say that happened 20, 30 years ago. And let's imagine in the interim new risk evidence comes to life because notwithstanding the fact that these drugs have gone through three clinical trials, they still have been tested on a fairly limited population. So much of what we learn about a drug comes after it's out on the market and in use, etc. And so one could argue that when new risk evidence comes to life, we need to have some kind of mechanism. If there were preemption on the basis that the FDA had approved the drug and the label, and then in a dynamic system, you know, that holds no matter what going forward, I think there would be a risk that the parties wouldn't be incentivized. What we want to have happen is the manufacturers have to be incentivized to take new risk evidence back to the FDA. And absent tort law, the threat of that, I don't think that would happen. Well, that's Uh, interesting because that that also raises the question, um, 
or, or it makes very important what the standard is within the tort system itself, right? Uh, because mm-hmm. uh, it, it, do they have to be shown to be um, uh, inattentive in some way in a negligence standard, or is it a, is it a, a, a strict liability mm-hmm. framework? Or it seems to me the 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 power of the incentive to return to the FDA would change depending on which of those rules you chose. Also, seems um, like you would want to look at punitive damages. So if if the goal is to is to take a tort suit and use it to send information to the FDA, for example, right, to right. Re- revisit this regulation, then the regulatory aspects of the, – the more regulatory aspects of tort, which I think would include punitive damages because it right. kind of encompasses total social harm where you think there will be under enforcement through tort or or otherwise, right, that the compensatory damages and that would be enough of a signal to the FDA to get to get going without – kind of pre without like reverse preempting the regulation you know yeah. what i mean and with this right. well this i have to interject because this is like i mean it's like, <laughs> it's like you're feeding me it's like a law professor friday dream or that's gonna be the tagline on our podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> so punitive damages right is another subject near and dear yeah. to my heart sort of i wrote the first law review article i wrote was called punitive damages as societal damages very much making that point making the point that um, punitive damages could serve in individual cases as um, as kind of what I um, somewhat facetiously put forward as a quote unquote poor man's class action. This idea that you would be um, it was taking the kind of Polinsky Chevelle under deterrence model, infusing it with some Calabresian mm-hmm. uh, insights and applying it. So that that I think is right, and I'm perfectly happy to see punitive damages as well within this kind of regulatory approach to tort law. On the first point, you you put your finger on a very important issue that I uh, uh, glided right over, the standard in tort. And it's very important, right, because the, there's basically kind of a, a, a raging debate, so to speak, at least in other countries that are looking to the United States as a model as to whether to follow the second restatement which would be Section 402A for products, or the third restatement on products liability. And the third restatement on products liability pretty much articulated a framework for products whereby strict liability would govern manufacturing defects. But when it came to design defects or failure to warn, those would be negligence-inflected tests. And my understanding is it's very rare if we're talking about um, for the regulation of drugs and medical devices, particularly failure to warn, even states that say, we are going to apply strict products liability. If you then look at what they do, they apply some form of a risk-utility negligence-inflected test. So yeah, everything, I've been operating on the assumption that in tort law in these realms, we are going to be applying a negligence-inflected type test, doing some form of cost-benefit balancing. And then it becomes interesting to think about the different ways, not only as rules rules of law, but in practice, right? Are juries really going to do cost-benefit balancing in the same way that an administrative agency would looking at the, you know, cold aggregate statistics when they're doing it against the backdrop of having a real person before them who has been injured. Well, in a way, they don't need to because the the, the, the role that's been described here, at least as I'm sort of maybe I'm caricaturing it in my own mind, but the, the role that's been described for tort in this context is, look, you're, you're always sort of JV defective administration, 
Um, we all know that the jury doesn't know that they don't need to be told that. Um, but but and this person's individual claim doesn't really matter except as a means to an end. And the end is improving the information flow back into the agency so that that ultimately all of this exists because it serves the interests of better administration. Um, and, and so it doesn't matter what the jury if the jury is not doing the sort of, you know, kind of CBA or other things. This is uh, if, you take, if you take punitives off the table. If punitives are on the table, then this is where the regulation is happening, right? Well, in this, but only in this shot of the game, right? Because yeah. the real game is that, and that's why I say JV, right? The real, the varsity game is in the administration uh, context, not in the yeah. individual tort claim. Should they context. get? Right. Should they have letter well, jackets at the FDA? <laughs> <laughs> well, but so this—that's an—it's an interesting way of putting it, and that gets back to I think when I was saying before, should there be any sense of a hydraulic effect? As you know from the paper, I reject this idea that regulation and tort should be conceived of as these substitutes, which right. would lead to a pure form of hydraulicism. But I do think that we would differ, we should and do. <laughs> hey, that, Darcy is saying hi to us. Darcy oh my, is often, say, she's that, often a that's guest. That's sort of like the move on signal. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. no. Was good until then. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't bark that well. So if you... <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, that, that we that we should possibly differentiate between different regulatory realms. So, for example, with respect to pharmaceuticals and medical devices, and given the nature of the stringency of the FDA pre-market review, and for normative on normative grounds, we could make the case that gets, this gets back to the earlier discussion about how it's not going to be enough to just police adulteration and get the snake oil. Uh, stuff out of the business. We need to do more. But in that kind of context, then the role of tort would be in this more streamlined furtherance of the greater administrative regulation. But take, you know, regular consumer products, we have, um, then the question that would be posed is, if we were going to likewise streamline the tort role there, we would definitely have to beef up the governmental regulatory review of products, and that has sure. costs and benefits itself. I mean, before we talked about the idea of, um, of thinking about trade-offs when you have one injured person before you, but you have many others who have been helped. We could apply that same kind of analysis to how stringently do we want to have X anti-regulation, right? We could talk about it in terms of type one versus type two errors. The more stringently the FDA regulates, the more they're going to minimize what we'll call type one errors, which is that they put out a drug that is harmful. But the more stringently they regulate, the more they're going to increase what we'll call type two errors, which is drugs never are approved that would do a lot of good, sure. right? So how do you measure? That's really hard to measure. How do you measure sort of like the lost opportunities because you so stringently are policing these type one errors, making sure nothing goes out mm -hmm. that would cause harm. And when you think about drugs, it's a really tricky problem because there's such heterogeneity in terms of the population. And it could be that a small group of the population could benefit from a drug that would cause disastrous consequences to sort of the majority so you then have to start thinking about how you can police this downstream, whether physicians are up to the task of doing this policing. What are you going to do when something goes wrong, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, and there was this interesting 
uh, effort, I think, a few years ago, you probably actually are much more informed of it uh, than I am. But the 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 individual people were trying to sort of repackage an individual rights claim about the right to use experimental medicines. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like a due process style claim. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, be, precisely because there there really is it really is a biological fact that there could be subsets of people who might be helped greatly, even though other people might not be helped at all. Or might be harmed for whom the downside risk is particularly small, like with right end of life. And if exactly, and if they're in, if they're in extremists, then that that shifts the calculus even further in their favor to get to use these things. And it shows that this is individualized, right? Right. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Even though as a default rule, you really you you really can make a a fairly strong case that the basic structure of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act that we want to have a gatekeeper at the front end so that safety and efficacy are demonstrated in advance. Uh, at least for things that are sold with a particular kind of health claim attached to them, that that makes a great deal of sense as a default rule, mm. right? Um, so, so it's interesting that there the 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 pressure on the other side winds up creating a again a, a kind of individual rights claim that helps pick up some of the slack in the conceptual work that the system is doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's not a personal injury claim; it's a you're not hurting me by giving me the thing. You're hurting me by depriving me of the thing. Right. Right. Um, can I ask about something else in the paper? Uh, well, yeah, Cause we've been focused on a very narrow slice <laughs> well, of the paper. There's <laughs> a sort of administrative law. Well, I think one of the that, big puzzles in the, that the paper is grappling with is, is the conservative cores kind of, uh, two mindedness about agencies. So on mm-hmm. the one hand, you cite all these recent cases, some of which we've remarked on in the show with quite breathtaking language, anti-New, De- anti-new Deal language, you know, right. about right. how the administrative state is – agencies the, are poking into every corner of life, which yeah. is, I think, a little, you know, maybe overstated and also shows like – I think for the average person, the perceived – you know, regulation of federal agencies is zero to a first order approximation. But if you're in a big business, right, uh, yeah. you know, then then that's not so. So I, I, right. I, I'm kind of curious about the, per, the perspective that but anyway, let's just take that as a given. And then in these preemption cases, you know, when a state uh, when a state court wants to regulate what goes on a drug, they come down very strongly with the exception of Thomas and maybe they come down very strongly in favor of federal preemption. And it kind of lines up with what big businesses want, right? They want one regulatory uh, scheme with which to comply, but they want a weak one, right? Yeah. They uh, want a single regulator who they can occasionally drown in the bathtub. So, uh, what I want to try out, and I'm, just, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just thinking out loud, right? Because uh, I want to contrast two different ways of looking at this problem. And, and, and so, I'm, again, I'm just thinking out loud, but, but one, one model might be the accountable authority model, which I think has a lot in common with the originalist method and as articulated maybe at its apotheosis by Scalia. And that is that, you know, we can't know what the best answer is for all of these things. But the one thing that we can do, and which is consistent with democracy, is to ensure that there is an accountable decision maker, a decision maker who can, uh, against whom the people can act. And, you know, this leads you to suspicion of too much uh, of sharing of power and all, et cetera. And then there's this I don't know if I'd call it rationalist optimist model or or institutional optimist model. And this is the model in we've talked about this before Joe with kind of my theory of Guido Calabresi in a way, right? It's this optimism in the good nature of most human beings. If they are in the if there's if they're in the right context to make a good decision, they will actually make a decision which is good for other people, right? Well, 
and it's it's the wrong context which gets you in the in the in the mode of making a selfish decision or a, or a, or an irrational decision. And so, what one of the things that courts can do is to try to flip around situations to put people in the right frame to make a good decision. Right, the whole property rules, liabilities rule thing goes to this, et cetera. And and if you're of this mode, then you're thinking, okay, what we want is a scheme which like minimizes harms, and we want to find the way to do that. And we've got all these institutional actors who have different kinds of competencies. Some of them are really bad at 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 being transparent, but really good at like crunching numbers. Others are really good at being transparent, but really bad at. And some are really good at like treating like cases alike because they see individual cases and the you know, etc. So there's some are really good at one thing, really bad at another. So what we like is a scheme in which all of those different talents can come to the fore to make a collective decision. And so I'm totally comfortable if I'm of this view. Uh, with giving kind of shared authority to kind of crunch through these difficult social problems, uh, so long as I, you know, use these institutions for what they're good at. And so some amount of like regulatory competition is okay, but maybe regulatory sharing is a better way of looking at it. And, And so I think these reflect, you know, broader distinctions between the right and the left, at least at the level of law, right? That the, the right is all about kind of, uh, it seems to be more about you know, almost guaranteed authority in singular institutions where that authority is accountable. You know, at its best, at its most principled, it seems to be about that. And I don't know if it, maybe the left is the wrong way of saying it, but but the the other side to that is one which is comfortable with encouraging good policymaking through a bunch of different tools, including shared authority. Does that seem accurate? Is that an accurate description of what's going on or is it, or am I totally off the rails? Yeah, so it it is, but I would add a bit of a spin to it. Again, really interesting. And, I, uh, you know, these are sort of uh, off-the-cuff uh, reactions. So first, before getting into the, uh, I, I will come to the deeper, uh, are these two models the right way to look at things? But just as a preliminary, it is interesting. I mean, my paper does, and many, they're, they're, it's sort of common, I think, in a lot of the literature, particularly the administrative law literature, to talk about... Um, these quotes from like the one you, you were alluding to, the city of Arlington, where yeah. it's agencies poking into every nook and cranny <laughs> of daily life. Or Thomas starts talking about, you know, the despotism and the tyranny hearkening back. I mean, one thing I do do in this piece, and um, Cass Sunstein, Adrian Vermeule have a piece also going back to talk about, um, they talk about the modern Supreme Court and the allusions to 17th century uh, English uh, and and Sir Edward Cook as the kind of defender of individual liberty and talk about how the modern Supreme Court is using these illusions. What I point out in the Pound paper is very interesting because they, they unwittingly are taking us back to the age where Pound, when he became quite anti-administrative state, was doing the very same thing. So I was very taken that this same kind of imagery gets repeated you know, uh, in the modern Supreme Court kind of stemming from this earlier uh, pound period. But even if that is a kind of what I called earlier sort of hysterical or overreaction, if you think about the, you know, in this New York Times piece that I alluded to before, and so the Times seems to be picking up on kind of popular sentiment, even if they're getting uh, some of the doctrinal niceties a little bit wrong by calling Obama the author of regulation, they talk about how these regulations have basically, I'm looking right here, right, they've inserted the United States government more deeply into American life. So I do think there might, there is a sense, a popular sense, if not the um, overinflated sense that regulations are 
becoming a much more important part of um, of people's individual life, whether they're thinking about it on a daily basis, et cetera, et cetera. The second point that you raised along the way, which is interesting and intriguing, is this idea that what might reconcile what's going on with the uh, um, Supreme Court's uh, skepticism towards Chevron and our deference, right? Our deference is the deference they're giving to the agency's interpretations of their own regulations, where Chevron is about their interpretations of um, statutes. Uh, you say, How to reconcile that with this idea that in the preemption context, they seem perfectly happy to give very large deference to the FDA. And you, you identify Thomas as a possible outlier. And I'll come back to that because he is and he isn't. But nonetheless, you then said, but all of these could be reconciled because they serve big business interests, right? Big business wants a single regulator. They just want a weak one. Well, I'm actually working on a piece right now for um, a conference. You know, Jonathan Adler has been uh, very interested in this idea of uh, of exploring and maybe challenging is the Roberts Court pro business, and so in a iteration of a conference that he's going to have at um, Case Western, uh, it gave me it's giving me the opportunity to basically take this um, this uh, juxtaposition of the modern Supreme Court's retreat from administrative deference and its seeming super deference given to the FDA and probe. Um, what has gone on with respect to the interest groups that quote unquote represent big business? And again, it's, this is just preliminary. I'm working on this paper right now. But what's kind of interesting to me is looking at the administrative deference cases, the hour deference cases in particular. And now I'm beginning to look at the Chevron deference cases. Business interests have, um, especially on hour deference, been kind of divided. They've been perfectly happy when it suits their the pursuit of their interest to argue in favor of our deference, you know, to the agency interpretation of the rule with the seeming exception of the Chamber of Commerce. The Chamber of Commerce, even in some of the cases where it would have suited their interest, seems to have been steadfast, more steadfast, more consistent about resisting uh, our deference. Hmm. And I find mm-hmm. that intriguing and interesting. And again, yeah. um, you know, where this goes in terms of is the court just following what the business interest wants, et cetera. But now to get to the meat, the heart of your question, which <laughs> the, I find the less, really, the less cynical view yeah, of what yeah. the conservative core is doing, right? right? Yeah. Which, which I find really intriguing is I guess I would add to your what you call the rational or institutional optimistic model know that it has to be optimistic. I'm an optimistic person by nature, but we could add sort of sticks and carrots, right? My idea is it it has to be a kind of incentive-based model. And a lot of what I think the courts through judicial review doctrines can and should be doing is what I've called like agency forcing. So take, for example... And here, too, I mean, I, I might as well showcase that I'm uh, ever working on new papers, but this one <laughs> I really am working on. It's called In the Wake of Chevron's Retreat. And what it engages is Chevron may or may not be retreating, but we have some big cases out there that I think present different modes or models of this retreat. And so in this paper, what I do is I distinguish um, King versus Burwell, mm. where the chief justice basically just punts Chevron under allegedly the major questions, but basically says this is too big and important for deference to the agency. And by the way, the IRS wouldn't be the right agency versus the Michigan versus EPA, where there's a lot of scrutiny on what's known as the second step in Chevron. But without getting into those intricacies, what the way I read Michigan versus EPA is that the court 
is going to be adding a kind of hard look review, in particular there, the EPA, uh, whether or not the cost-benefit analysis that it did with respect to the threshold decision to regulate was, uh, was stringent enough. And in a sense, what I argue is that kind of a model um, not only is a better model than get the agency out of this or let's divide and conquer, sort of what you might say would fall under your accountability model, that we have certain types of institutions that should be making certain decisions and judges should be interpreting statutes, for example. Um, but this model not only has to do, as you put it, between kind of a regulatory sharing or which institution should be doing what, but I think very importantly, and this is where the title comes in, in the wake of Chevron's retreat, it's agency forcing. The agency, I believe, will make better regulations knowing that it's going to be subject to more stringent judicial review down the road. So I guess I, I think I would just interject into your model, you know, much mm -hmm. more of the sticks and carrots right. and the ways in which you can um, not just sort of have this, you know, kumbaya <laughs> and Glossian world and hope that you create. I mean, in one sense, you could say that's a different view of creating the right environment. But right. I think it's a little more than that. I well, think that's it's why, more yeah, I thinking. Would, yeah. yeah, I always think of like like you and Guido in terms of like the um, the institutional picture are, like I say, optimistic, but not naive. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, you know, if the structure is right, we'll make rational decisions because that's what people want to do when they're acting according to their competencies. And so that it's optimistic about human nature in that way, but not naive about it, right? If you make the wrong setup decisions. And, and what you said just made me think of a, of a possible argument against the authoritarian accountability model and in favor of this optimist model, if we, if we call them that. And, and I, don't, I, I don't have this fully fleshed out. I was just thinking as you were talking, there's a connection here with Ronald Coase's theory of the firm, mm -hmm. right? So, so um, when do we want um, – so the, the, the trade-off that you have between one one rulemaker, one large firm, uh, and a bunch of different firms which are kind of contracting with each other and monitoring each other. On the one hand, you're paying transaction costs in the the kind of heterogene heterogeneous institutional model. And in the authoritarian model, you're paying principal agent costs, right? And, and so uh, – and accountability is supposed to minimize those principal agent costs so that, you know, if you don't like – if you don't like uh, the regulation of, of climate change, you've got uh, the regulation of climate change uh, pollution, then you've got one agency to go after. You've got one person to hold accountable and it's the president. Like this is like because ultimately all this goes back to a unitary executive theory, I think. Right. right? Whereas under the heterogeneous model, you don't have one person that you can that you can blame. Uh, but um, uh, you can do you know what I mean? I don't know if I'm. Kind of I do. Out of control, I mean, but. no, I do. I think though that there's one other. There's one, and and this I'm gonna. Tr I'm trying to get at actually in this in the wake of the Chevron retreat piece because there's a there's an additional um, feature I think, which is let's imagine let's take what you're calling the authoritarian model and take, um, for example, a, a sort of extreme position that suggests that it's inappropriate, you know, for um, for agencies to be making law, um, in a sense, in a situation where the reality is that Congress has delegated authority to the agencies who are promulgating these regulations, um, inevitably the courts, right, you're going to be faced with this like less than ideal situation that if there is 
policy making to be made. So take the major question doctrine, right? If we, if we set aside agencies in these quote unquote major questions, because there's no way that Congress would have delegated authority to them, or you have the wrong agency before you, what's the alternative, right? If it's an, it, the, the judges then are going to become policymakers right. for these major questions that aren't going to be defined because we're starting from the premise that Congress has been ambiguous or hasn't addressed a particular. So I feel like there is a there is a real deficit on the first kind of model because even if as a as a first best we might say which institution should be doing which function on a kind of formal separation of powers etc. If we live in a second best world, say, where one of those institutions uh, is not fulfilling that role, and then we have a trade-off between two of the other institutions, let's say courts versus agencies, if Congress has been dysfunctional or has not satisfied its goal, then, then it doesn't help you a whole lot. And I, and I feel like a lot of these modern dilemmas pose that uh, particular well, question. that's why you know there's some conservatives who want to bring back the non-delegation doctrine, right? Exactly. Right? And, and you know, and there are multiple ways to try to say let's whatever the law is, let's make sure that we can always say who the decision maker was. And of course, Scalia was not in favor, as far as I can tell, of bringing back the non-delegation doctrine, and right. it was in favor of a very strong Chevron doctrine, right? Which also has the effect of centralizing accountability, but this time in the agency, and and he would favor ultimately in the president, right? Because he wants to connect those two things, right? So. It, you know, there's kind of a um, an, an inter uh, intracollegiate intracollegiate, but, but intramural, right, is the word. In, there's mm-hmm. an intramural conservative struggle over the best way to realize, I think, this kind of authority accountability model because there's not just one way to do it. I think right. also that the subject of the thing that upon which all this action is taking place really makes a difference. So, for example, we were talking before about you know injury prevention with uh, with uh, pharmaceuticals. Um, if we shift to King against Burwell, we're talking about instead of Obamacare two case, right? Instead of contrasting a personal injury claim against injury prevention by preventing something from reaching the market or providing the right kind of warning for patients and and prescribing physicians, that's that's one kind of objective. King against Burwell is about creating a functioning insurance market, uh, which is a very different kind of thing. Not least because it's going to be an ongoing project. Like we're never going to be done. This is actually never going to get finished. It's a, it is a by its nature eternal that you have to keep <laughs> you have to keep working out how the market is functioning. Is it functioning properly? Uh, churn in patients, the way different packages of things are offered, and the way people either take up those offerings or don't. And um, society's changing in exchanges, yeah, yeah. correct, yeah. and all these things. So you know the minimum level of the minimum required coverage is going to change. So so it's just a fundamentally different project. Right. And given that it's a different kind of project, you would expect the relationship among, um, you know, courts, agencies, executive uh, branch supervision of those agencies uh, and and individual people who might be uh, uh, unhappy with how things are going in the system. Right. All of those are going to interact just in a very different way. Right. So I I don't think we would expect ad law to always work out the same way without regard to subject matter. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I would add, I think we could add to the complexity, and actually this uh, is one of the points that I think sometimes gets lost in the shuffle with respect to King versus Burwell, is we also have challenges, particular challenges that are posed by delegation to multiple agencies. So you mm. mentioned that this is about insurance field, et cetera. If you actually look, the um, you know, King versus Burwell, there was an underlying 
uh, decision out of the D.C. Circuit. Judge Edwards had written uh, in that um, a dissent, actually, talking about how the um, Patient Protection Act had jointly authorized IRS and HHS to administer various sections of the statute, sometimes in tandem. Interestingly, the Chief Justice... Uh, actually, in his city of Arlington, had started talking in dissent about how the norm these days is that multiple agencies have been delegated uh, authority and jurisdiction. And he uses that as an argument for why we shouldn't have Chevron deference. But I think, in fact, mm. it really, to my mind, it gets into in these kind of complicated areas. Like, it's pretty clear when we're talking about the regulation of pharmaceuticals and medical devices that we're talking about the FDA. And we can look at the regulatory record. What has the FDA done? Where are the interests involved here? How do those play out vis-a-vis what's happening in the tort lawsuit? Here, if Congress has granted kind of concurrent regulatory authority my argument here is that courts need to spend some time also looking sort of a deep dive into the regulatory record to understand whether this has been done jointly or not. I mean, in King versus Burwell, the chief very uh, quickly says the IRS is the wrong agency. Well, what if the IRS and HHS together are the right agencies? And did he look into the rulemaking to see what happened between those two agencies, et cetera. So I think you're right that it will change. But at the same time, I think there are some approaches like that we could lay out in a model that's about a model of what the court should be looking to, how they should interrogate the relevant actions of the agencies that might apply, you know, more transubstantively. It's funny, my intuition on that on that last point uh, is is runs qu- quite the reverse in, in from the chief justices in the sense of multiple agencies. M- my thinking there would be well, it, that's an even clearer signal of delegation and deference, right? Co- Congress, of course, knows that um, interbranch coordination uh, and inter and interdepartmental coordination and sort of the coordination efforts are going to get amped up correspondingly, given that multiple agencies have been put in play. Uh, and that's exactly what the executive office of the president and all the little bits of it and OIRA and all the rest, all of that gets put into play. So uh, absolutely, there should be more deference. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I wrote, uh, there's a lot of this um, kind of joint delegation that went on in the Dodd-Frank Act. And so I wrote this uh, other article once that was looking at this issue. um, And there was a peculiar doctrine out of the D.C. Circuit that seemed to hold that when Congress had delegated to multiple agencies, no one agency could get Chevron deference. And their thought process was, because how do we know if we defer to, you know, agency one, what agencies two and three are thinking. And I made an intervention that seems quite simplistic uh, and intuitive, but was against the prevailing grain of doctrine to say, well, what if you have a situation? And in fact, one of these cases did when I went and read the underlying enforcement order, the other two agencies had actually submitted briefs saying that they supported the same position. So my point was, what if all three agencies actually agree with a particular interpretation of policy? Shouldn't that, shouldn't you get like, super deference. (laughs) Like, why should you get the absence (laughs) of deference? So I think you're right. I mean, in King versus Burwell, and again, I'm just at the beginnings. This is for that as part and parcel of that, this um, to come in the wake of Chevron deference piece. When you look, it's a little bit, um, you know, at the underlying regulatory record and what happened in terms of the coordination between IRS and HHS. It's a little bit murky. It's even a little bit murky 
with respect to the in which parts of this massive statute did Congress grant concurrent regulatory authority or not, et cetera. So I think the issues are difficult. I guess I wouldn't agree that just because you have two agencies that are given some authority in some parts of the statutes, then it means you have deference. But I do think the courts should be reviewing the rulemaking records. And in this instance, it should have been of both the IRS and the HHS. And then there would be some difficult questions like, did the extent of coordination between the IRS and the HHS suffice to give the IRS authority but are we to, to issue put, the rule? Are we to put no weight on the fact that, um, you know, the Solicitor General of the United States is standing there telling you that uh, it, it comporting with the way the statute lays out the responsibilities of these different administrative actors, they came together and created the thing that is now being adjudicated. It seems to me that ought to bear some weight. In other yeah, words, I the SG agree. reports yeah. to the AG who reports to the president. It's this is it, it, and and it's not like people are off on frolics and detours. This is sort of a coordinated presentation of a coordinated event. Yeah, I guess. Um, again, this comes back to my sticks and carrots. I like <laughs> interrogation. I like thinking that people are principled, et cetera. I have seen, for example. So here, just to switch gears to something that I looked at at a very fine grained level. There are instances where the FSG would make an argument before the court where the FDA, for example, the chief um, counsel had not signed on to the brief and um, others where they were just putting forward their view that there should, for example, be preemption, etc. I think sometimes a court, depending on the matter, if there is some kind of underlying um, empirical data that would substantiate the position, I guess my preference is to have the court give a hard look to that and interrogate it. But yes, here, if there are, I mean, it, it, I, I don't know. It doesn't seem to me that there was um, as much of a laying out of the precise amount of coordination. And it's also the King versus Burwell is a kind of um, strange example, because if you start from the, you know, it seems pretty clear that this was a kind of unanticipated uh, issue that arose. So it's a little hard to yeah. suggest that there was a lot of ex-ante coordination, et cetera, between the two. But yes, in general, that should be something that the courts look to. I'm just not sure that always um, just a bald uh, assertion of argument should suffice. So, Kathy, we've kept you a while, and I, you know, I, I, I want you to be able to end up with whatever is most important to you, but maybe circling back to Justice Thomas, which mm-hmm. we mentioned in his oh, distinct right. role. I mean, because there are so many areas of the law where either his his vote is not important, or if it is important, the reasoning is not, because it's um, it, it may be important in the long run. What I mean is immediately important in the sense that it's, it doesn't form the fulcrum of any struggle on the court because it's, it's an idiosyncratic and raised only by him. Uh, is that true? So, you know, you, you describe how he's kind of not the same as the rest in the conservative core. And I, I don't know if that uh, is, you know, distinctive about administrative law. I'm not saying this very well, but I'm just wondering if if he plays a, a, a more key role, both in terms of reasoning here. And because you write about it in the article, like his, mm-hmm. some excerpts, and it's very interesting the way that he connects things. But I don't know if it's more, if the reasoning is more relevant here than in, than in other areas where he may provide a vote or not. You, you know what I mean? I'm- I do. So I think I would distinguish. So what's interesting is he's become, he has a kind of singular 
voice in both the preemption context, although I, I want to delve into that a little bit more, and in these um, in these administrative deference retreat type decisions, where he's taking a much more hardline view, would seem to be favoring very much the kind of um, bring back non-delegation doctrine really right. set up a kind of formalist structure. But let's, let me talk first, because I think it's really interesting in the preemption context. Um, after, so, there, and I'll try to do this succinctly, right? There was a big preemption case, Wyeth versus Levine, where Justice Stevens writes the majority opinion saying that the individual um, who was injured by a brand name drug could, in fact, bring her failure to warn claim in state court, notwithstanding the fact that the FDA had approved the drug and the label. And the dissent is pretty vehement in that case. Um, and it's written by Justice Alito. It's joined by the Chief Justice and the late uh, Justice Scalia. It calls this a frontal assault on the FDA. It also says it's outrageous. Here I'm paraphrasing, but it's sort of outrageous that the majority doesn't give deference to um, the FDA. Um, and it doesn't, it can give deference. It gives a kind of very large sweep to the types of materials. It could defer to what the SG is saying in the brief before the court. It can defer to preambles. It doesn't have to be things with force of law, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Thomas, in that decision, doesn't join his, quote-unquote, conservative brethren, right, in dissent, and, but writes a separate concurrence. Um, and in that, he basically makes a singular stand against the whole doctrine of what's known as obstacle preemption, right? Obstacle preemption, we talked a little bit before. I don't want to get too much into the weeds on this, but obstacle preemption in this, is this idea that what the state tort law claim is doing is getting in the way, is serving as an obstacle, is obstructing the aims of the federal regulatory policy. And he writes a separate concurrence to say he's had misgivings all along and that basically what the court has come to is relying on things like agency musings and all sorts of things that are not in the statutory text. So his idea is, no longer am I going to do that. And liberals, it was actually interesting. Um, remember at the time, and I've written uh, about this, I think it, um, can't remember if it was, I think it was in the Washington Post, there was an article written like, Justice Thomas, Supreme Court liberal. And actually, liberals, <laughs> liberals thought that he, more so than the majority, because the majority still believed in this obstacle preemption idea and still believed in giving deference to the FDA, actually yeah. in Wyeth, the majority only didn't give it deference to the FDA because of some shenanigans, we'll call them, some procedural quirks where the FDA had put something out for notice and comment and then changed its position thereafter without allowing any more comments. And this is just to be clear, this is deference to the agency's conclusion that it should preempt. Right, right. Yeah. So Which is a weird combination of these two issues. Right. Yeah. So, but what the interesting factor was everyone, well, not everyone, many people thought, oh, Justice Thomas, because he's going to go to the statutory text and the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act with respect to drugs has no express preemption provision. Therefore, he will be our big champion. Then, lo and behold, after that, he writes the majority opinion in a case called Pliva versus Mensing, which is pretty much a replay of Wyeth. It's an injured individual bringing a failure to warn claim, but this time it's against a generic 
drug manufacturer, not a uh, brand name. And again, without getting into the weeds of it, so Justice Thomas writes the majority opinion saying there is preemption. So wait a minute, how can that be? I thought he had thrown out, you know, obstacle preemption. Well, it turns out that there's another form of implied preemption, right? Not express where it's in the statute, but a form called impossibility that basically says that if the manufacturer is in a situation where it would be impossible for them to satisfy federal law and state law, there can be preemption. And so this case turned on the fact that generics had to have the same label as brand name drugs. By statute, right? By statute. Well, this is where it becomes interesting. By, (laughs) By quote unquote federal law. So what is federal law? And here's where it's very interesting. Justice Thomas, in this majority opinion, right, invokes multiple times our deference that Mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier, that we are going to defer to what the FDA, how it interprets its own regulations. And so he defers to the fact that the FDA tells the court that it interprets its own regulations to mandate that the generic has to follow Mm. suit. So Mm. what's fascinating to me and what I point out in this paper is, in some sense, here is the chink, right, in this armor of resistance to the administrative state. And, um, and it's quite intriguing to me that, you know, before that time, one could have said, you know, is Thomas the lone principled one who is showing his antipathy towards the regulatory agencies equally across these domains. But it's quite interesting to me. And I've also noted, and it's one of the reasons uh, I'm going to work further in this uh, Case Western uh, Symposium context to develop it in all of these discussions that I've been now engaging in of is Chevron retreating? What's happening to administrative deference doctrines? Oh, the business community is well behind that. They're supporting the separation of powers, Restoration Act to get uh, Chevron and our clearly out of the law, et cetera, et cetera. As far as I can tell, no one has thought through the fact that it is a kind of pillar that upholds preemption in this generic drug context. And I find that very, very intriguing. Um, so with uh, the, I want to make sure I understand the Thomas yeah. point you just made yeah. it, it, uh, on this preemption point. So a yes. more, if, if you maybe, um, you know, t- we'll posit a justice named uh, Thomas, 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 all three of his names, first names, last names, middle name, Thomas, Thomas, Thomas. <laughs> so what, what this person would say is, look, there's only one kind of preemption and it's impossibility preemption, right? When one sovereign requires what the other forbids. Um, and, uh, and we'll just need to figure out which one of them is supreme, right? So that's the only kind of preemption. And it has to be in statutory text explicitly that there is this impossibility. There's one authority ultimately, and it is Congress here. Right. But I have to interject right there because no, not it has to be in statutory text. Like let's step back. That's well, what people were thinking before this case, express preemption is it's in statutory text. Implied preemption is it's not. An obstacle and impossibility are both forms of implied conflict preemption. My explicit text point was was addressed at the administrative law question, right? That, that, That it will not involve any deference for me to reach the conclusion that there is preemption. I will be able to do it judicially and independently. Because I will not, no, no administrative agency is going to get between me and figuring out whether or not there's been preemption. Um, and if I lim- and if I limited myself to that context, right? If you were this other justice. If I'm this other justice, um, Thomas T. Thomas, uh, it, 
if I say that's my preemption theory, the, there's going to be very little preemption. It's going to happen very rarely, right? Um, so I would think that the uh, the sort yeah, of U.S. It just Chamber depends on how Commerce, you interpret. Yeah, I'm statutes, not sure. So here, so right? here's the thing: the one thing left out of your framework is um, it could be so impossibility might be very very narrow. But as was the case in this case, and there was a follow-on case where they likewise, actually it was written by Alito, but they likewise cite back to Mensing and say they're deferring to the FDA's interpretation. If it involves our deference, right, A-U-E-R, that right. our versus Robbins case where you're deferring to the agency's interpretation of their own regulation, that opens up, I think, a wider berth of potential "Quote unquote impossibility preemption, right? It's not. It's not as. I mean, you're right that we could. I think we could articulate a view, and I think you're right too to suggest that Thomas, one view of why he would say um, no obstacle preemption, but we will have impossibility, is impossibility preemption looks more akin to express preemption, and we can yep. look to something, whereas express preemption, we're looking at the text of the statute. Here, we're going to look at the text of the regulation. But to allow this room, this interpretive room with deference to the underlying agency, I think, and in that case, seem to have opened up a wider berth. Now, you're also absolutely right that um, what he's not willing to do is defer to the agency's view, even if they, he will defer to the agency's interpretation of its own regulation, he will not defer to the agency's view on the preemption question. Because ironically, the FDA, represented by the United States in that case, did not want preemption. So he found preemption against the position of the United <laughs> States, but did so by deferring to the agency's interpretation of the particular regulation. Now, has he been as exercised about the hour issue as as much as Justice Scalia seems to have been exercised about the hour issue? Yeah, well, he's definitely, um, I mean, I would argue he's become more exercised, right, in the sense he's certainly more exercised about taking all of those concerns and saying they exist in Chevron, and Chevron should fall as a result. But he has right. been equally, you know, I guess the way I have framed it is, you know, the most striking attack was the one by Scalia yep. in his partial dissent in Decker, only because he was the author right. of Power. So 16 <laughs> years later, and he so was he's obviously... Recanting. Yeah. yeah, and he was heavily influenced, you know, by John Manning and his work. I think this is a yeah. good thing for judges to be influenced by their former class. You know, that's, that's it's, it's, it's not a I minor mean, reversal either, right? It's not no, a, because, it's, because it basically derides our deference is completely inconsistent with the very idea of the rule of law, right? right, right. By, by concentrating um, these functions. Whereas, yeah. he, whereas but, Justice Scalia seems very committed to Chevron, right? Yeah. yeah. And well, so it's possible to hold yeah. in your mind these two different uh, these two different conclusions. Chevron is something uh, that, um, and I and I take well, as I, Exhibit A in that city of Arlington for which you wrote the majority, right? Uh, that uh, you can you can come down very strongly in favor of a of a very muscular and robust Chevron and still think our deference is inappropriate. That's because yeah, that's because if you have a unitary Thomas seems to think it's all bad. Then then Chevron implies accountability in a way that our doesn't because our Precisely. is so squishy because it allows you to say one thing and do another. Right. right. But, well, but let me just come back to the yeah, original yeah. question, though, which is that after so after Decker, there's this case Perez versus Mortgage Bankers Association, 
And what's interesting to me in that case is it really didn't even the majority engaged our only in a footnote. And then each of the um, three you know, justices um, in what I'm calling this conservative core write separate concurrences. Justice Thomas in that case um, calls our a transfer of the judge's exercise of interpretive judgment to the agency. And then he analogizes this threat as I mentioned earlier, to individual liberty that's posed by, you know, the 7th century English king yeah. in parliament <laughs> and goes on about the dangers of tyrannical government. So, yes, he is as exercised, okay. you know, I, I think in some sense. And and here's the thing. I mean, I um, get very uh, uh, persuaded by my own uh, arguments as much as any uh, <laughs> academic. But one could say, well, wait a minute, uh, Sharky, all of these preemption cases, particularly Wyeth versus Levine, is in 2009, you know, at that time when it served them to be very deferential to the FDA, to put aside the common law. As I said, to me, what this shows, I I write this in the paper that we're discussing, and I think it also explains um, some of the alleged uh, inconsistencies elsewhere, is there is an aversion to the administrative law, uh, to agencies as regulators, but it might be trounced by the aversion to, to juries and common right. law tort. Right. Exactly. And so that, if that were sort of going on there, then the argument becomes, okay, wait, this attack on our deference really doesn't get started till later. Um, really, the best data point, if we were trying to look at a temporal, well, maybe now their views have switched, is that Thomas is as vehement as he is in Perez, um, which comes out, what, in 2015, and by that point, you know, the generic preemption cases aren't that far removed uh, in time from that period. So, uh, again, I think, you know, one could ask an interesting question of, so how would Thomas, or here's, a, you know, I think litigants might be interested in this question. Could Thomas write the same decision? And then the follow-on that actually Alito writes in another generic, there's a, there's a case called Bartlett that's another generic preemption case that comes along that's basically, okay, we said failure to warn is preempted, but our design defect claims preempted. And the court says yes. And as I said, I think they also rely implicitly on our deference. An interesting litigant's question might be, okay, the next preemption case comes along. Um, can they come to the same conclusion if that pillar falls? And I think that, you know, it's kind of an intriguing question. Like, how important is that pillar of our deference to this uh, federal preemption area of gen- in generic pharmaceuticals? And what would happen if the justices were faced, some of them, with that clash? Well, uh, we're going to find out because the court's personnel is changing. Right. So, you know, there's going to be that's the inflection points, I think, are real on that ground alone. Look, I want to wind this up just by observing that if... Um, among the other amazing things that I learned from Kathy today, two great article titles have come out of this. Okay, cool. Uh, one is A Common Law for the Age of Regulation. Yes. Like someone's, you, Kathy, you've got to write this book. Yeah. Uh, well, I've started many times. I started articles with that title, and then they switched to something else. And I, maybe it is because I'm waiting. You're for waiting the, for, the, for the, the, book. the perfect yeah. one, right? Yeah. And the, the other one clearly is Our Federalism. Mm. Right. I mean, it, it's a deep cut. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, you laid it down, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's, but it works better on the podcast format when you say it than it, it does, does in, right. when it does. you see it in a title. Our federal. Right. But that's <laughs> like you guys know, right? You, I don't know. You may even have done a podcast. The the Sunstein Vermule piece. That's the new Coke. 
Right. Yes, it's, of course, it's the misguided new cook. Right, because right. all these poor, unsuspecting initiates into the law world <laughs> who will start calling him Sir Edward Coke. Exactly. Right. to say the new cook doesn't really play <laughs> off. As, so that one plays off a little better in writing. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kathy. Yeah, this was this really awesome. Thank you. This was really, really fun. Can't wait to have you back again. Great. Take right, care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.